You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 212 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. First of all, I've done a boo-boo. I've done a mistake uh, in earlier episodes when I talked about the USB 200 that you can buy that's engraved with the molecular structure of DMT and uh, made of wood and... It has uh, all the first 200 episodes and a lot of other material on it that you can buy. When I talked about that, I said it also had 16 gigabytes. But in fact, it's 32. So it's twice as big. And there's still a few, very few left if you want to get it. And just go to nationalalchemist.com and you can find it there. Now, if... uh, If you want to support this podcast, I suggest you become a patron. Uh, Just go to patreon.com forward slash nationalbornalchemist. Depending on what you give, uh, you will get access to different things. And everything you can read about over there at patreon.com. Anyway, in this episode we are going to hear a selection of interesting clips from Psycherans which is the Baltic's biggest consciousness and psychedelics conference that gives us an opportunity to meet the planet's four leading experts in the field. Luis Eduardo Luna, Dennis McKenna, Susan Blackmore and Jeremy Narby. This conference was held in Estonia last year and I have the honor of being able to play a few excerpts from this conference. You can listen to these talks in full if you go to videolevels.com forward slash psychorans. Psychorans is psyche followed by R-E-N-C. There's a link in in the program notes. And you can buy all the talks for uh, 20 euros or 23 dollars. I have not been paid to endorse this, but please support this amazing conference. First, we will hear a short bit from Eduardo Luna's talk, after which we will listen to Dennis McKenna talk a bit about some of the technical details regarding the mind. When he's done, Susan Blackmore is going to touch on consciousness in general. And finally, we will hear from Jeremy Narby. I love Jeremy Narby. In a sense, this podcast would not exist without Jeremy. It was his book, The Cosmic Serpent, that over 10 years ago sent me to the Amazon. And you will hear the sweet Jeremy talk about his experiences as an anthropologist down in the Amazon. And he was there before ayahuasca was known by anyone outside the very small psychedelic community that since then has grown quite large. I do hope you all buy the full talks and support this conference and for no other reason, at least from my perspective, it is worth the money to hear Jeremy Narby's talk in full. Anyways, I really enjoyed listening to these talks in full and I hope you will too. Uh, All you gotta do is put down some of that cash. Anyway, here is... uh, Psychrens 2018. Psychrens. Hello, Hello, Estonia. Estonia. 
welcome, welcome to, to the Psycherans. I'd like to mention before we start that today happens to be the fall equinox. It's a very special day. Equinox in Latin is equal nights, equal night and day. It's a special day. The plants know what day it is. Ladies and gentlemen, Luis Eduardo Luna. Yeah. Hello. Okay. What a pleasure to be here in Tallinn. Again, I have come many times, and congratulations, Alan Tamin and his team, because this is absolutely extraordinary what he has done. And I'm also very happy to be here with my friends, with Dennis, with Jeremy, with Susan, and other friends sitting in the audience. So a great privilege and honor for me to be here. I begin on a very special year, 1492. 1492 changes, changed everything. It, it makes the beginning of a process that will bring peripheral Europe and Asian Peninsula which center was in the, until the 14th century in the Middle East. It was a turning point in a calamitous way because we had two great civilizatory experiments on both sides of the Atlantic and they came together and one engulfed the other. The two continents had been separated for 12,000 years the, bio, the flora and fauna had been separated. And we had two old worlds. Very often you say the new world, the old world, the new world. No, we have to think that there were two old worlds coexisting and developing. If we think of the year 2600 BC, we have Saqqara in Egypt. But at the same time, we have Caral in Peru. Remember once Graham Hancock told me, please give me that slide, you know, because I'm going to put it in a lecture uh, on Egypt, and nobody will notice the difference. We had in summer, in the southern Mesopotamia, along between the Tigris and Ephrates, we had a civilization who was the foundation of our civilization here. But in Chico Norte, in Peru, at the same time, we have over 30 centers, a very special 1,300 years of great civilization. And when the archaeologists were digging, they could not find any weapons. They could not find walls. They found flutes. They found... Um, Cotton, uh, they found some sacred plants. So it was a completely different civilization. But here in Europe, also you have something similar. The Neolithic cultures, like in the research done by Maria Gimbutas, Lithuanian, your neighbor, who did extraordinary research and it was giving hope because 
Also, before the, the Indo-European civilization, there was peace here in Europe. There was dance, there was art. Now go back to the 1492, or just before 1492. We have Henry of Portugal. It makes it doubly hard for me because we have to sort of bring it down to earth in a sense. And in a sense, my job is a lot easier than everyone else's because I'm not really talking about consciousness and these extra dimensions and all that. I'm talking about the nuts and bolts, you might say, of psychedelics. Molecules, plants, pharmacology, and just try and frame all that. Um, and perhaps then that will uh, make it easier to interpret the, the, the less, uh, less empirical, less uh, pedestrian um, um, topics that, that we'll be discussing. I can't really see you very well out there, but I wonder how many people in this audience have ever studied chemistry or botany or pharmacology? Oh, not very many. That is, uh, that's, a pro that's going to be a problem for us. <laughs> But we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, how many in the audience know what pharmacognosy means? Almost no one. Okay. Well, pharmacognosy is uh, another one of those $20 words. It just means the scientific investigation of natural products, natural biologically active substances. And, and, and in a few years ago in pharmacy schools, that was a course that every pharmacist in training would, uh, would be required to take, the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the chemistry and pharmacology of natural substances. Now they don't teach that anymore. And it's a pity because something has been lost, something important has been lost. Well, we're going to go into this uh, with uh, some, uh, going to look at it in some detail and hopefully you won't be totally confused or if you are, good for you. That is an area that you, you may want to delve into or maybe not. So this, what you're looking at here is a picture of the human genome. This is one way to depict it. Uh, and note that most of the functions of the human genome are unknown. This dark area here is the part of the DNA where we don't know what the functions are. But the other areas are uh, related to where the, the genetic material, the genetic coding comes for different types of enzymes. You're all aware that ultimately uh, you got DNA to RNA, RNA codes for proteins, and many of those proteins in biological systems are enzymes, which are essentially chemical catalysts. A big part of what life is, and this part here, the blue part, is the part of the genome that is uh, associated with signal transduction. Uh, it's about one-fifth of the genome, of the entire genome, and only a portion of this uh, are this important area of receptors called the G-protein-coupled receptors. That represents only about 2% of the genome. 
but that's the part where most of the psychoactive drugs that we know, and of course there are thousands, uh, interact with G-protein coupled receptors. Now signal transduction, what do I mean by signal transduction? That's kind of a fancy word, but obviously there's a signal involved, and signal transduction is kind of a special term in biology where the, the, the transmission of the signals is dependent on chemistry. So we can send signals through the air with electromagnetic waves and this sort of thing. We can send visual signals and this sort of thing. Signal transduction processes in biology have to do with the interaction of a molecule with a target. So in other words, the chemical, whatever it might be, a neurotransmitter, for example, has to reach its receptor, bind to it or interact it with it in some way, and then interesting things happen, are triggered by that interaction. So that's signal transduction. And signal transduction is really occurs both within organisms and also at the ecosystem level. And really, the ecosystem is just a massive organism. The idea of Gaia, Gaia is a massive organism the size of a planet. And it's all regulated through signal transduction. Signal transduction is the process that uh, essentially chore uh, choreographs a, an organism's career in space and time. It's, um, it... Um, Organisms look like objects, right? We all look like objects. You look at an organism, it looks... And it is an object, but it's also a process. And the process is metabolism. And if, if something doesn't have metabolism, it's suddenly very boring because it's dead. And metabolism is this process through space and time that is regulated by multiple signal transduction processes at every level of organization. So it's important to sort of get that concept in mind because these psychoactive drugs affect this signal transduction process and with the consequences that we have. So the brain is basically a machine for signal transduction operations that are mediated through neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are these small molecules that mediate the, what you might call the crosstalk between neurons. And the binding of these neurotransmitters to receptors on other neurons and the cascades of biochemical offense that result from that that's signal transduction, and that, that is what underlies the functioning of the brain. And all of our critical, all of the brain's critical biochemical functions, including our experience of conscious awareness, are mediated by this neuronal communications network. That's basically what this, uh, this spongy organ in our heads is. It's a, a machine for generating signals in a meaningful way. So, neurotransmitter phylogeny. How can I there follow that? I mean, live up to that. I know how. Find uh, out about you lot. You. Who's you conscious? Hands up if you're conscious. <laughs> you come on, everybody. Okay, hands down. Hands up if you're not conscious. Conrad, yeah. Any more not conscious? Are you sure? 
Good for you, because that means you're thinking, even if you're just doing it for a joke. But you might not be. You might be thinking, I've no idea what consciousness is, so how can I say that I am? For many people, asking that question is a kind of like a waking up or a coming to. Or, oh, yes, of course I am. And that naturally makes you think, well, what about a moment ago? Now, it seems to me, both from asking lots of audiences and students in classes and decades of meditation, that every time I ask myself, am I conscious now, the answer is always yes, but I have no idea about the rest of the time. So here's one thought. We think we know what consciousness is like, sorry, we think we know what consciousness is like, but we're only really aware of what it's like when we're asking what it's like. And I suspect the rest of the time the brain's just getting on with its stuff. And unless we're really uh, being mindful or asking these difficult questions, then there isn't an answer. This might or might not make more sense by the end of my lecture. And I hope by the end of my lecture, as Peter said, I hope your heads will hurt. Because if they do, I've done my job properly, which is to make you realize just how difficult the question of consciousness is. I'm going to refer a few times to my greatest hero, William James. Uh, I've read every page of his 1890 book, The Principles of Psychology, which was a brilliant book. And then Freud came along and ruined everything with all, this, with all that stuff, you know. And, and kind of William James went under. But he took nitrous oxide. How many of you have had nitrous oxide? Oh, only a few. It, I mean, it's very, very short-acting and can be quite sudden. And he, this is where the most famous statement about um, states of consciousness comes from. Because he said that after taking that, he had this impression that never went away. That our normal waking consciousness is but one special type of consciousness, whilst all about it parted from the filmiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. And that's what I want to talk about. Now, nitrous oxide is a kind of miracle philosophical uh, interchange. Here you are, standing by your uh, tank of nitrous oxide, and it's obvious the world is made of matter. Here am I, about to take it, and there's the world of matter out there. Ooh, it's made of thoughts. <laughs> Wears off in a minute or two, and uh, we're back to matter. Take some more. How marvelous. Does should make you worry about your own philosophical assumptions if a simple molecule with three atoms in it can change your understanding of the world so easily. I've just been reading this very interesting book. Someone referred to it this morning, uh, Peter probably, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. And it's, it's, very good. it's very good. It describes some of his experiences and, um, and the, uh, a, lot, a lot more, and the history, and so on. But he does ask stupid questions a few times. And this is something I've hit again and again and again in my life. I've studied out-of-body and near-death experiences and all kinds of stuff. And you get this question like, oh, but is it real? Or is it just a drug? And he has done that a little bit. He says, was his experience a drug experience? Just an interesting, pleasurable, but signifying nothing? Um, or was it, you know, the real thing? And he asks one of his um, uh, 
drug guides. How can you be sure this was a genuine spiritual event and not just a drug experience? Can you guess what she said? That's a silly question. <laughs> and this is important to me when we consider the relationship between consciousness and psychedelics. That the question to ask is not, are these experiences real out of body or real visions of another world or, or, or are they just hallucinations? In a sense, everything we see is a hallucination in the sense that our brains are constantly trying to make an idea of what the, the world is, predict what's coming next. Predictive processing, um, uh, going around the world, the brain is kind of going, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, could be that, ah, yes, that conforms to it. And so, in a sense, we're living a hallucination all the time. So it's a stupid... Uh, perhaps I shouldn't go on about stupid questions, but I want to make that clear before I delve into some of these things. So the better question was asked by William James in his famous book, um, The Varieties of Religious Experience, way back in 1902. He says, we, you know, we can't account for the universe in its totality if we leave these other forms of consciousness quite discarded. How to regard them is the question. So I'm going to have a go at regarding them and find out what they're like. Are you still conscious? <laughs> How many of you would say that you were conscious all the way through from the first time you saw this? Do you have any doubt? I do. I wasn't mindful all that time. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to maintain. And I suspect that most of the time there's parallel processes going on in the brain and nobody, nobody there. We're called up to order. But more of that in a minute. Now, when I asked whether you were conscious, most of you answered as though you know what consciousness is. Most people think they know what consciousness is, and I suggest that most of us don't. One of the curious things in consciousness studies, and I've been involved in the field of consciousness studies, which really began back in 1994 um, when um, Dave Chalmers started the first Tucson conferences. Has anyone here been to the Tucson Consciousness Conferences? A few, yeah. Um, it's, it's recent, you know. At least for old people like me, it's quite recent. Before that, you couldn't even mention consciousness in kind of, you know, reasonable science. Um, but one of the curious things about consciousness is that amongst all the philosophers, neuroscientists, psychologists um, now working on, on what they call the field of consciousness studies, we don't have a definition. There's no definition of consciousness. That's pretty serious if you're wanting to do some science of consciousness. Thanks again for coming. It really made this a special event by your attendance. Our next speaker, our last speaker today is Jeremy Narby. I've heard Jeremy introduce himself by saying, I'm simply an anthropologist. I've heard him say, I'm nothing but an anthropologist, but it's true, but he is so much more than that. He's an author, he's a thinker, he's an activist, he's a discoverer, he's a husband, just to name a few. He's a master of intercultural 
fluidity. He really is. I don't think he knows how many languages he speaks. But he speaks them all perfectly. He embodies creativity. He comes up with ideas, explains them, and provides examples of natural things, things in nature, which then prove his ideas. He might be a genius. I don't know. His groundbreaking book, The Cosmic Serpent, has released more than 20 years ago. I've seen it around here, a bunch of people asking him to sign it. And it's still selling and opening minds. It's a fantastic book. His book, Intelligence in Nature, has also opened many minds, including mine. And then also slammed a whole bunch of doors shut in academia. So according to science, nature is not intelligent. It's a blind stumble with some lucky breaks. But uh, I got to say, I'm on Team Narby on this one. He's also an activist who travels to the Amazon basin every year to seek out the lost ways and knowledge of ancient cultures. And he doesn't destroy anything while he's there. Just absorbs information and tries to share it with other people so we can learn and grow. He's a renaissance man. He's my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, our final speaker for the day, Jeremy Narby. Yeah, buddy. Thirty-four years ago, I arrived in the Peruvian Amazon as a young anthropologist to live with Ashaninka people, Ashaninka Indians, lived right in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon. I had no previous experience of the tropical forest or its indigenous inhabitants. I was arriving straight from the university library, and I wanted to study how Ashaninka people used the resources of the forest, because at that time, the international development banks, like the World Bank, said to develop the Amazon means to take the lands away from the Indians who occupy it and don't use them rationally and give them to individuals with a market mentality so they could cut down the forest and uh, establish ca cattle pastures. This is what they called development. It was in fact territorial confiscation and deforestation. Well, the point of my study was to contradict the international development banks and try to show them that the indigenous people used their resources rationally and therefore deserved the right to own their lands. So I started living in this Ashaninka village because this is 
what you do when you're an anthropologist. You just hang out with people and ask them questions. And uh, so I, I wanted to know how they used the forest. Uh, the question was a loaded question. The development experts would fly over the intact forest and say, it isn't used. The point was to go into the forest with the people and to see how they actually did use it. Well, the Peruvian Amazon is the epicenter of world biodiversity. There are more species of plants, reptiles, birds, insects, mammals, than in any other place of similar size. And when you walk into the forest, what you see is a, like an impressionistic painting of all kinds of different species. Uh, but surprisingly, the barefoot Ashaninka Indians who would accompany me into this forest had names in their language for just about every species of plant. And they ascribed uses to about half of them. So plants as medicines, cosmetics, foods, building materials. They had a, an encyclopedic knowledge of plant properties. Say this plant accelerates the healing of wounds, and this plant cures diarrhea, etc. I'd try these medicinal plants on myself, only to find that they, that they worked, including one plant called Sanango, which the fellow said, this, this plant heals chronic backache. I happened to have chronic backache. I'd played too much tennis when I was young. Uh, and I'd been to the doctors in London and Switzerland. I'd had cortisone injections. I'd had heat treatment to no avail. Uh, they said you take a half cup of this uh, sanango and uh, at the new moon and it'll turn you into rubber for 48 hours and on the third day uh, you'll be healed. Um, well, I, I didn't think that this was going to work. Um, uh, but I thought it would be interesting for my research, so I gave it a try. And it happened just like that. I lost all bodily coordination for two days, and on the third day, I woke up with my chronic back pain vanished, gone, and it never came back. This is a medical anecdote. But, um, <clears throat> but still, uh, I knew that the reaction was not psychosomatic because I didn't think it was going to work. So these Ashaninka people seem to have uh, physiological knowledge about plant properties. This plant accelerates the healing of wounds. You put the sap in the wound and then you notice that your wound heals twice as fast. So then the question became, how do you know what you know about plants? And that's when it became complicated. 
because different people told me on different occasions that they're ayahuasqueros, tabaqueros, sherry piari in Ashaninka, the one who uses tobacco, take their tobacco paste or their ayahuasca, which is this hallucinogenic mixture of plants, and in their visions they see the essences or mothers or owners, we might say spirits, of the plants and who give them information. They said that uh, nature was a source of knowledge and you could learn about things in visions and dreams. Well, I didn't take this seriously. I, it, it couldn't be true in terms of rational knowledge, because if you consider that there is verifiable information in your hallucinations, then that's the definition of psychosis. You have to be crazy to believe that. But still, um, I was intrigued by this question of the origin of their knowledge about plants. And one night I found myself in a neighboring village and we'd spent the day working in a garden with some men and so we were drinking some, some manioc beer. And um, I tried it once again. I said, oh, you people, you know, so you know this is the anthropologist at work, you say, oh, your knowledge about plants is so remarkable, so how do you people know what you know about plants? And one man said, uh, Brother Jeremy, if you want to know the answer to your question, you have to drink ayahuasca. He said, it's the television of the forest. It, it'll sh show you images and you will learn things. So, uh, plants as teachers, as Luis Eduardo Luna uh, put it. Well, uh, I grew up in Switzerland where LSD is an indigenous product. Um, I tried LSD several times. I thought I knew about this sort of thing. I accepted the fellow's proposition to show me uh, ayahuasca. Um, I didn't think it was going to be part of my official research because after all the point of my research was to try to show that these people used their resources rationally. Um, so it seemed to me that looking into the hallucinatory origin of part of their botanical knowledge would not actually serve the political argument I was trying to make. Uh, still, uh, I was curious, so I accepted his proposition, and I found myself one night in early 1985, so this is 33 years ago, on the platform of a quiet house surrounded by the forest. And I should say, I'm, I'm going to describe uh, this experience. Um, I'll first say, uh, this is a 
This is where the public health warning comes in. Um, my understanding is that strong hallucinogens like this are risky. They're risky because you can't know how borderline you are until you try them. And so um, ingurgitating a hallucinogenic substance is a risk that you take with your psyche. But I was willing to take that risk by telling you my experience. I'm not encouraging you to do the same. I'm giving a testimony about how these people approach understanding plants. That is my subject today, plants as teachers, plants as persons. Plants as persons is that these Ashaninka people, when they talk about plants, they talk about them precisely as persons. That ayahuasca has a mother, tobacco has a mother, not just the psychoactive plants, all these other plants, each species has a, a mother, an owner, a kind of personality, an entity that is associated with it that uh, looks after its interests on the level of the individual plant and also on the level of the species. So that's where the plants as persons comes in. In any case, this one night, this uh, Ashaninka Ayahuasquero, uh, before we got started, he took, took out a some plants and, and said, this is Toei. I didn't even know what Toei was. In fact, it's Brugmansia, you saw, it's a kind of uh, dat tree datura. And uh, if I'd known that it was a datura, I might, have, might not have inhaled, as Bill Clinton put it. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't, so I did inhale. And, um, and then we drank this bitter brew in Ashaninka. The word for ayahuasca is kamaranki, from the verb kamarank, which means to vomit. And it also contains the word maranki, which is serpent. It's serpent vomit is the, the word. And that's kind of what it tastes like. Um, <clears throat> And um, 10 minutes later, I, I found myself uh, surrounded by enormous fluorescent serpents that were 15 yards long, one meter high, and they started talking to me in a kind of telepathic language that went right through my forehead. And the first thing they said was, you're just a tiny human being. And I could see by looking at them that, that they were right, that my usual presuppositions about the world as a three materialist, three-dimensional rationalist that presupposed that what my eyes were showing me didn't exist had bottomless arrogance. This caused my Weltanschauung to collapse in front of me. Talk about ego dissolution, worldview dissolution. Um, and then, um, on the wings of 
the ayahuasqueros songs, I blasted out of my body. Susan was talking about the impossibility of out-of-body experience. At this point, I was an agnostic, materialist, Marxist, feminist. But I found myself kilometers above the planet, looking down on the planet, which was all white and covered in ice. This was 1985, and my understanding is that the snowball earth hypothesis was only formulated eight years later. The idea that at some point in the distant past, this planet has been entirely covered in ice. Uh, I'd never heard of such a thing. I'd never seen such a thing. I, and I was thinking, what am I doing above the planet? I, I must be out of my body. I, I felt like calling Plato. What is going on? And then the shaman modified his uh, Ikaro song, and I landed back inside my body and saw hundreds of thousands of complex, beautiful images flashing back. Images like the veins of a green leaf and the veins of a human hand. And this went on for what seemed hours. I think we drank at nine o'clock at around midnight. I had my watch with me. Around midnight, ah yes, it was starting to come back down. The, the experience had been like being in a washing machine for two or three hours. I think it was a particularly strong experience also because of the brugmansia, the, to, the toe. I think that um, these are uh, not plants that I recommend, and I think that the uh, impression of leaving one's body is enhanced by brugmansia. But um, anyway, well, the next day I went down to the river to freshen up, and uh, I took the uh, leaf of a bush and held it up to the sunlight and looked at the veins of my hand and saw that it, it's true. It, it was the, the same, similar, and also the same texture. I felt like I was a, like a, a plant that could walk around. I, I felt a, a reconciliation with all of plant and animal life. This was the first time in my life that I, I felt that I was part of nature. This was uh, an antidote to the anthropocentrism of anthropology. Anth anthropology, anthropos is a human. It's, it's a human who studies human. This is, here was a young anthropologist, and what the ayahuasca showed me was that there was more to life on Earth than humans, that I was maybe a small human being, but part of a, a whole. So I could understand what the Ashaninka had said. You drink this stuff and it shows you images and you learn things.
If you want to listen to the complete talks, please go to videolevels.com forward slash Cycrens, where you can buy all of them for only 20 euros, about $23. And again, I am not being paid to endorse this, but please support this amazing conference. The official website of the conference is cycrens.org, and Cycrens is spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E-R-E-N-C-E, psycherens.org. This summer, a true story. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Everything is about to change. If you want to support the podcast, become a patron. For a few bucks a month, you'll get access to these episodes before everyone else. And you will also get access to a lot of additional material not available anywhere else. Join us at the Round Table of Divine Mystery over at patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist. Check it out. Now I'm going to close this episode with some good propaganda from 1947 followed by Over the Rainbow in a version performed by the great late Glenn Miller next week I'm going to talk about a rejection letter freedom is in the mind I happen to know the facts my friends I'm just an average American, but I'm an American-American, and some of the things I see in this country of ours make my blood boil. I see people with foreign apple money. I see Negroes holding jobs that belong to me and you. Now I ask you, if we allow this thing to go on, what's going to become of us real Americans? What are we real Americans going to do about it? You'll find it right here in this little pamphlet. The truth about Negroes and foreigners. The truth about the Catholic Church. Do you believe in that kind of talk? I don't know, it makes pretty good sense to me. And I tell you, friends, we'll never be able to call this country our own until it's a country without. Without Negroes. Without alien foreigners. Without Catholics. Without Freemasons. What's wrong with the Masons? I'm a Mason. Hey, that fellow's talking about me. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? We must never let that happen to us or to our country. We must never let ourselves be divided by race or color or religion. Because in this country we all belong to minority groups. I was born in Hungary. You are a Mason. These are minorities. And then you belong to other minority groups too. You are a farmer. You have blues. You go to the Methodist church. Your right to belong to these minorities is a precious thing. You have a right to be what you are and say what you think because here we have personal freedom. We have liberty. And these are not just fancy words. This is a practical and priceless way of living. But we must work at it. We must guard everyone's liberty or we can lose our own. If we allow any minority to lose its freedom by persecution or by prejudice, we are threatening our own freedom. And this is not simply an idea. This is good, hard, common sense. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up 
I heard of once in a lullaby Somewhere over the rainbow skies are blue And the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops That's where you'll find me Somewhere over the rainbow skies are blue Birds fly 